The Honorable Marks Moore is a British judge. He sits on a bench in a court in southeast London. Judge Moore seems to be your prim and proper English jurist. In typical British fashion, he wears a wig and long robes. But there's another side to Marks Moore. Recently, a sex offender was on trial in his court. This sex offender tried to make a break for the door of the courtroom. Only one thing stood between the defendant and freedom. That was the Honorable Marks Moore. Well, the main doors of the courtroom were barricaded, but the judge's quarter had been left open. Well, when the defendant sprinted for the door, Judge Moore met him in the hallway. He grabbed him around the neck and threw him to the ground. The two men tumbled down a set of stairs. Well, the bad guy jumped up and he continued to race down the corridor. Judge Moore stayed in hot pursuit. When the sex offender stopped to push open a fire door, the judge caught up to him and tackled him rugby style, threw him to the ground. Moore held him down on the ground until the prison officials arrived, proving you can't outrun the long legs of the law. Which is what our book tonight proves. Jonah teaches us that you can't outrun the long legs of the Lord. You can't duck God. Jonah was a man who learned the hard way that you can't run from God. Well, the book of Jonah begins. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The word Jonah means dove. Yet by nature, Jonah was more hawkish. Jonah was nationalistic, extremely pro-Israeli. Jonah believed strongly and rightly that the Hebrews were God's chosen people. And they were destined to rule over the other nations of the world. This is why Jonah's first prophetic assignment had been such a joy to him. 2 Kings 14 verse 25 states of the Israeli king Jeroboam, he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah. Jeroboam II ruled the northern kingdom from 786 to 746 B.C. And Jonah had predicted Israel's victory and the expansion of Jeroboam's reign. Hey, judgment on Gentiles, blessing on Jews. This was right up Jonah's alley. Here was a prophecy that fit Jonah's prejudice. But now, according to verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, this time with a different kind of request. He's told to go beyond Israeli borders and call the city of Nineveh to repentance. And what was difficult about that task? Well, you see, Jonah loved God, but he hated Ninevites. Jonah was a spiritual bigot. He understood that Israel was God's chosen people. But that didn't mean that there wasn't room in God's heart for other people. 
God loved Ninevites just as much as he had loved Hebrews. Reminds me of the Chinaman and the Jew who were eating lunch in a New York deli. With no provocation at all, the Jew, he walks over and he punches the Chinaman right in the nose. The Chinese fellow gets up off the ground and he shouts, what's that for? The Jew answers, Pearl Harbor. Well, the Chinaman can't believe it. He said, we had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. That was the Japanese, not the Chinese. The Jewish man, he shrugs. He says, what does it matter? Chinese, Japanese, Taiwanese, you people are all the same to me. Well, moments later, the Chinese man, he walks over and he cold cocks the Jew. Well, the Jew picks himself up off the floor and he says, what in the world was that for? The Chinaman answers, the Titanic. The Jew scratches his head. He says, I don't get it. What did the Jews have to do with the sinking of the Titanic? The Chinese fellow tells him, he says, Goldberg, Feinberg, Iceberg, they're all the same to me. Well, the moral of the story is that all racial prejudice is just that irrational. One author writes, never try to reason the prejudice out of a man. It was not reasoned into him and cannot be reasoned out. Hey, think about it. It's illogical to judge a whole group of people on the actions of a few. Bigotry grows out of ignorance and misconceptions and personal grudges. Somewhere along the line, Jonah copped the bigoted attitude. He assumed that Jews were better than Gentiles. You remember in Jesus' day, the Jews had this same attitude. Rabbis taught that God had created the Gentiles to be nothing more than kindling, to stoke the flames of hell. Like Jonah, they hated anyone who was not a Jew. We all need to know that racial bigotry is an affront to God. It narrows and restricts and puts limits on God's grace. Racial prejudice shrinks the heart of God to one group, my group. Prejudice is the ultimate selfishness. Once a lady in our church, she told me, she said, Pastor Sandy, prejudice isn't a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And that's so true. Prejudice is the pinnacle of pride, to think that just because you're not like me, you're inferior. That's heresy. Prejudice is a sin against God's love and creativity. The prophet Jonah definitely was a bigot, but he may have justified his hatred for the Assyrians in some specific ways. You know, most of us reject the kind of irrational prejudice that occurred in the Delhi between the Jew and the Chinaman. But seldom is bigotry so simple. Racial prejudice is so prevalent because it gets much more personal. You see, the Assyrians had assembled the most heinous, brutal, cruel, bloodthirsty army to ever roam the earth. Assyria had become a sword with no conscience. After conquering a village, the Assyrians would hold a man down on the ground they would reach into his mouth and they would rip his tongue out by its roots. They amputated arms and legs. They hacked off feet and plucked out eyes and cut off lips and ears. They would set fire to a man's wife and children before his very eyes. One specific Assyrian trademark was to set a pile of skulls outside the city gate 
just to remind those who were left what would happen if they rebelled. Often the Assyrians would skin their prisoners alive. It's believed many of Adolf Hitler's crimes against the Jews were borrowed from the ancient Assyrians. Now it's interesting, in 2 Kings chapters 14, verse 25, what we read earlier, we have what seems to be a random fact until we dig deeper. There we're told that this prophet Jonah was from a town called Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer was a village about five miles west of the Sea of Galilee. This was significant, for during Jonah's lifetime, the Galilee was the site of terrible atrocities. Inscriptions in the ruins of Nineveh speak of military forays into the Galilee where Assyrian war parties would pillage and raid. The Galilee was the northern part of Israel and thus made it susceptible to Assyrian attack. These raids were designed to intimidate Israel's king. The king would pay blackmail money and buy a few more years of protection from the Assyrians. What if one of those raids happened in Gath-Hefer? What if you had lived in Gath-Hefer, this little village, and one day a band of Assyrians rode in and set fire to your fields, impaled your father on a spear, flayed your brother with a knife, and burned your two sisters before your very eyes? God says, love your enemies. Would you love these Assyrians? You see, all of a sudden, prejudice would take on a whole new meaning. When you've been victimized by someone of a different group, you tend to take out your anger on other members of that same group. It's not right, but it happens. Could this have set off Jonah's prejudice? It's possible Jonah had been violated by the Assyrians, or he knew someone who had. Maybe they had raided his hometown of Gath-Hefer. And you see, Jonah knew God. He knew that God is rich in mercy. And Jonah figured rightly, if he preached to Assyria and they repented, it would be just like God to forgive those wretched people and treat them as good as he treated Israel. This would be more than the prophet Jonah could stomach. Jonah wanted to see the Assyrians slaughtered, not saved. He prayed for Assyria's destruction, not its deliverance. Jonah hated Assyrians. To hell with Nineveh was his attitude. Here's a problem that you'll encounter if you choose to follow God. God doesn't hate the people that we hate. God doesn't hate the people that we hate. The person who cheated you out of your money, that person who violated you or maybe someone you loved, the person who ripped off your innocence, God hates their sin, certainly, but He still loves the person and He's willing to forgive them. What do you want to see happen? You see, this is where prejudice gets personal. This is where it can get extremely toxic. God loves your ex-spouse. Do you? God loves your alcoholic mom who puts you through torture. Do you? God loves your abusive father. Do you love him? 
God loves your annoying neighbor. Do you? God loves your unsympathetic boss. Do you? What if God called you to share the gospel with the person that you hate? With the person whom you've sent to hell a million times under your breath? What if God chose you to lead that person to heaven? You see, you and I have more in common with Jonah than we might first think. Verse 3 tells us, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah decides that he doesn't want to cooperate with God's missionary efforts toward the Assyrians and to Nineveh. He declines the assignment. Jonah walks 20 miles to the port of Joppa. You see, Nineveh was east, so Jonah buys a one-way ticket west to the farthest destination he can find, the land of Tarshish. Now, we're not quite sure where Tarshish was located. Some scholars believe that it was a sleepy little fishing village around the Rock of Gibraltar on the Atlantic coast of Spain. Others identify it with Britain. Ezekiel 26 identifies Tarshish as an exporter of tin. That's why the British Isles were known as Britannia. They were known for their tin. Regardless of its exact location, Tarshish was the civilized world's furthest western settlement. So in essence, to sail from Joppa to Spain would have taken over a year, stopping at many ports of call along the way. In other words, a ticket to Tarshish was the equivalent of a slow boat to China. And I'm sure Jonah bought a one-way fare. He was on the run from God. He was attempting the impossible, fleeing from the God who is everywhere. Before we go further, let me suggest that all disobedience to God is in the final analysis born out of a prejudice. Maybe not racial prejudice, but a prejudice nonetheless. You see, it comes from a preconceived notion that has no actual validity. God wants you to witness to a friend, but you assume your friend has no interest, and so you don't. God calls you to a task, but you figure your spouse will never grow for it, so you don't. God asks you to give, but you can't calculate how you could afford it, and so you don't. You see, assumptions, prejudices crowd out our faith. Realize a person can be on the run from God and never leave their own backyard. It's true. Lloyd Ogilvie writes, What instructions from God panic us? What prompts us to say, Anything, Lord, but that? If God told us to communicate His mercy to some person, to some group, to some type of human need, what assignment causes us to dig in our heels? Is there a prejudice in your life that you struggle to overcome? Here's the big question for us tonight. What's our Nineveh? Well, Jonah set sail for Tarshish, but he never arrives. Verse 4 tells us, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. 
Notice God sent the storm. He conjures up the waves. He sends the wind. I think we need to realize that often the storm that hits, that rocks our world, originates in the counsels of God. God often creates storms in our lives to get our attention. And this storm was a violent one, so much so, we're told the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid. And every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. They were afraid for their very survival. They dumped their cargo in order to save their lives. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. Chaos on deck, and a slumberer sleeps in the belly of the ship. You know, you wonder if Jonah even cared what happened to him. The prophet had not only boarded the boat, he'd gone below. He was asleep in the hull, in the belly of the ship, trying to hide from God. You get the impression that Jonah was in a state of denial. He even tries to sleep through the storm, but God forces him on deck. Verse 6 tells us, So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. The other passengers and crew had been praying to their gods, but to no avail. It was time for Jonah to pitch in a prayer. It was all knees on deck. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. When God refused to answer their prayers, the crew assumed that there was a rebel on board. They decided to help God flush out the prodigal passenger. And so they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. The crew rolled the dice. Perhaps they drew straws. They were trusting God to pinpoint the culprit. You remember Proverbs 16 verse 33 declares, The lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. And that's exactly what happens here. The lots fall on Jonah. And then they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? These questions were probably a part of an official interrogation conducted by the sailors' tribunal. And so he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. You know, it's amazing that it never crosses Jonah's mind to pray, to repent, and perhaps God would deliver them. Apparently, Jonah's heart was so hard that he would rather die than deal with his prejudice toward the Assyrians. It's sad when you encounter a person whose heart is so hard, they'd rather die than give up their prejudice. 
Remember, Jesus calmed the storm for his disciples. What a contrast between Jonah and Jesus. You remember both were asleep in the belly of the boat when the storm began to brew. The difference was that Jonah was in a state of denial, whereas Jesus was in a state of dependence. Jesus slept confidently in the boat, unconcerned about the storm because he was trusting, depending on his Father. Jesus prayed and God calmed the sea. Jesus could have calmed the storm for Jonah, but the problem is Jesus wasn't in Jonah's boat. Jonah was trying to avoid God. He was running from God. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. They didn't want to throw Jonah in the water. That's what he had told them to do. They refused. Instead, they tried to row harder. Hey, when you're on the run from God, don't be surprised when the sea of life, that is, your circumstances, turn against you. Here the sea becomes more tempestuous against them. Apparently, even after they identified the stowaway, the crew didn't want to toss Jonah overboard. They tried to outrow the storm. They tried to get to the land, but they couldn't. The choice was to ditch Jonah or drown. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea. And amazingly, the sea ceased from its raging. Suddenly, the sea grew calm. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. The crew members were so impressed with what had happened, they worshiped God. Even in his disobedience, Jonah's missionary efforts began, (laughs) reluctantly on his part. The sailors realized that his God was the creator and controller of the sea and the winds. You know, it's ironic, but it was Jonah's obstinance and his hatred of the Gentiles that provided an opportunity for these Gentile seamen to develop a faith in the true God. God used Jonah's rebellion to cause their salvation. And this becomes a pattern in the prophet's life. God uses Jonah more in spite of him than because of him. We'll find this to be true over and over again. God used Jonah more in spite of him than because of him. God can do that. God can use you more in spite of you than because of you. Well, chapter 1 starts with a great city. It includes a great wind. And now it ends with a great fish. Verse 17 tells us, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now here's where this story gets a little fishy. Couldn't resist that. Imagine Jonah. He's sailing through the air courtesy of the sailors who've thrown him overboard. He splashes and hits the surface of the water. He's struggling to come up for air when suddenly 
The lights go out. He's now surrounded by stifling heat. He's feeling the soft tissues. He's cooking in a mixture of juices and slime and gases. Reminds me of the cartoon that pictures Jonah at the front door of his house. He's greeted by his wife who scolds him for crying out loud, Jonah. Three days late, covered with slime and smelling like fish. And what story have I got to swallow this time? There are skeptical people who've had a hard time swallowing the story of Jonah. That a human could survive in the stomach of a fish for 72 hours. In fact, did you hear of the atheist who asked his Christian friend, he said, come on, man. He said, how could Jonah survive three days and three nights in the belly of a whale? The Christian said, well, I don't know. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. The atheist fired back. He says, well, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? That's when the Christian replied, well, then you ask him. (laughs) But hey, it's a legitimate question. How does a man get swallowed by a fish and then survive for 72 hours in its belly? We should ponder a few possibilities. First, notice in verse 17, the Hebrew word translated prepared, it implies a special, unique preparation. You see, God didn't just pick the biggest fish he could find and say, you're it. No, this was a deliberately designed fish. We assume Jonah was swallowed by a whale, but the Hebrew term is simply a large fish. In fact, the Jewish rabbis taught that God created this particular fish on the fifth day of his original creation for the one unique privilege of chauffeuring Jonah. They taught that this fish swam the seas for thousands of years waiting on this one appointment. Here's another thought. A baby is conceived in his mother's womb. God provides for that baby to float and eat and grow and survive for 280 days in a sack of fluid. Now, don't think I'm dumb enough to compare a pregnant woman to a whale. I'm stupid, but I'm not that stupid. Besides, I value my life. But if God can keep a baby alive in a woman's belly for 40 weeks, why can't he engineer a way to sustain Jonah in a whale's belly for three days? Good, interesting thought. You know, today's Navy has nuclear submarines that generate their own air and water and stay submerged indefinitely. Why then is it hard for us to believe that God can create a fish capable of carrying one man for three days. Here's another thought. Since whales are the largest animals currently living in the sea, we assume what swallowed Jonah was a whale. But it could have been a -a one-of-a-kind creature, maybe a now-extinct dinosaur. Perhaps God created an animal with a cavity off its digestive tract designed specifically for this prophet. It no longer exists. It's now extinct. It's a possibility. Even if this fish were a whale, this story is still not impossible. The average sperm whale has a mouth 20 feet long by 15 feet high by 9 feet wide. That's larger than some of your bedrooms. Whalers have found whole man-sized squid and sharks inside these whales. 
though it would be stifling in a whale's stomach, somewhere between 104 and 108 degrees, there would be plenty of air to breathe. The gastric juices in a whale's stomach would affect the pigment in a man's skin, but the chemicals don't digest living flesh. If they did, they would eat out the whale's own stomach. A man could survive in a whale's belly. In fact, over the years, there have been a number of reports among whalers of fellow fishermen who fell into the sea only to be found later alive inside a whale. One such story is of a whaler named James Bartley. In 1891, he was lost at sea off the coast of the Falkland Islands. The accident occurred as the sailors tried to harpoon a whale. A few hours later, as they were harvesting the whale's blubber, they noticed activity in its stomach. When they cut open the animal's belly, they found James Bartley alive and well. His skin was a bit discolored, but he was otherwise unharmed. Aspects of the story have been debated, but the scenario is possible. Here's my point. In chapter 1, verse 9, Jonah refers to God as the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. If God made the sea and the billions of teeming life that inhabit the earth's oceans, then he could certainly create a fish capable of carrying Jonah for 72 hours. And here's one final suggestion, the most provocative of all. Regardless of what swallowed Jonah, it's possible that he had already died that he was dead, that he had actually drowned in the sea, or maybe he was dead inside the animal. His dead body was preserved inside the fish. Then he was resurrected and he was coughed up on the shore. Notice chapter 2 verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now look carefully at that last line. The word Sheol was the Old Testament term for Hades, which was the abode of the dead. It could be here that Jonah is speaking metaphorically, that the stomach of this fish was a hell on earth. Or he could be speaking literally. Perhaps he had died. His spirit had gone to Sheol. And from there he repented. In other words, it was from the afterlife that God gave him a second chance. Now you remember in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. It was there that Jesus said, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Notice what the New Testament teaches about Jesus. Jesus literally died on the cross. He went to Hades, where there he preached to the captives who were waiting on a Savior. Then he rose from the dead three days later. And in Matthew 12, Jesus compares his journey to Jonah's experience. Perhaps Jonah actually died. His body was preserved inside the fish while his spirit was praying from Sheol. That's when he was resurrected from the dead, just before he was spit up on the shore. It's another possible interpretation. 
Well, chapter 2 records Jonah's prayer of repentance. In total darkness, in stifling heat, in boiling gastric juices, surrounded by slime, in a seaweed body wrap, Jonah prayed. Apparently, the belly of the fish provides a person with an excellent opportunity to ponder the error of their ways and to plot a new course in life. Reminds me of the young man who came to the elder of the village. He said he wanted to know God. This elder took him down to the river, and he held the young buck's head underwater for a long time. The young man fought him, gasping for air. Finally, the elder let him up, and he told him, he said, Son, when you become as desperate for God as you were for air, then you'll find him. And it was in such a state of desperation that Jonah broke through his prejudices and cried out in repentance. We like to focus on what was going on inside the fish, but you know what really matters in this story? What was going on inside Jonah. Again, verse 1 tells us, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. His body was in the stomach of the fish, but his soul was seeking after God. See, Jonah had tried to run from God's presence. He had tried to escape God's jurisdiction, only to wind up right back at the Master's feet. Reminds me of Psalm 139, beginning in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Jonah discovered nowhere. If I descend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I'm sure Jonah bought a one-way ticket to Tarshish. But when you're on the run from God, you're actually getting a round-trip ticket because he's going to bring you right back where you started. Jonah's cry of repentance begins in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Imagine Jonah floundering in the surf. He's going under for one last count. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah had sunk to the bottom of the sea. But as often is the case, it's on the bottom that you begin to look up. Some people have to hit rock bottom before they can rise back up. In chapter 1, Jonah is running from God. Now in chapter 2, Jonah is running back to God. He says in verse 7, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to Him into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Jonah had made an idol out of his own prejudice. Jonah had placed limits on God. You see, Jonah said he was committed to God, but it was a commitment with conditions. There were certain places Jonah wouldn't go. There were certain things Jonah wouldn't do. Have you and I done the same? 
Have we put limits on God? Is our commitment to God one with conditions? Have we developed traditions and convictions and prejudices about God that have become more important to us than God Himself and the truth about God? Are we willing to analyze our prejudices to see if they're based on human wisdom or if they're truly biblical? God will use the storms of life to challenge our faulty theology, to break down our false concepts that we've developed. It's in the storm. It's in the belly of the whale that we're forced to see God as He really is rather than just how we perceive Him to be. I love this cartoon. Jonah's standing on the beach with his cell phone. He says, yes, God, I can hear you now. Verse 9, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Before Jonah was ready to preach God's mercy to the Ninevites, he first had to taste the mercy that he would preach. His submarine ride was necessary. See, you can't share truths that you don't possess. God first works His truths in us. Then He allows us to give out those truths. But first He works in us what He intends for us to give out. And so the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now here the story gets really fishy. It's one thing for Jonah to talk to God from the belly of a fish. It's another thing for God to speak to a fish. And here's the irony of all ironies. This fish is more obedient to God than Jonah. God orders the fish to barf up Jonah, and he does. You know, it's interesting, the research that marine biologists have done with whales. Apparently, the animals communicate with each other through a sophisticated system of sounds. Biologists have identified clicks and whistles and pulse calls. Did you know that humpback whales actually sing to attract females? I've tried that. It doesn't work so well for me. A lot of effort has gone into understanding the communication pattern of whales. But God is the expert on whale talk. For here we're told the Creator spoke to the great fish, and the fish coughed up Jonah. Notice the three P's relating to the fish in the story. God prepared the fish. The fish perceived God's will. Then finally, the fish puked Jonah onto the shore. And I'm sure Jonah was quite a sight. Can you imagine? Next week, we'll talk more about what may have happened to him in the fish. But he was probably stained stark white. And he stunk. You can believe that. Imagine reeking with the smell of half-digested fish. I wonder what else was in that fish's belly. Probably rubbed off on Jonah. But Jonah, through this experience, got a new lease on life. More importantly, he got a second crack at ministry. Jonah came full circle. He stopped running from God, and he started running with God. What a difference that is. What a difference it is to be running from God, but now be running with God. See, Jonah teaches us that we can't escape the calling and will of God. Tonight, if you're on the run from God, 
or from God's calling on your life. God is fishing for you. And He knows what it's going to take to bring you back into His will. In fact, God can create the storm. And God has prepared a fish. He can intercept you, and He can turn your life around. He has means. He knows what it takes. He'll let you hit rock bottom until you're ready to look up. He wants you to repent of your prejudices and be open to whatever it is He has for you. Let me ask you one final time. What is your Nineveh? What is the one thing that you just won't do? The one place you just can't go. The one mission that you just won't accept. The one person you just can't love. Is your prejudice more important than God's will? I hope the answer to that question for us all is no. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight and for your love for us.